Thank you. That's a great song. Yeah, it's good. I, I reckon like a bit of slide guitar. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. What's that, a Sue Cornish request? Thanks, Sue. It's good. I didn't know we played requests. It's good to know. Um, it's a pretty significant topic today. Um, <coughs> And I, I kind of just need to say from the outset that what I'm, what I'm going to share with you this morning, it comes from a place of really deep conviction, but like a really palpable inadequacy. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a difficulty to try to express some things of God. You would have found that, no doubt. There are some things that are just hard to kind of put into words and, and, and hard to say in any kind of a sensible way. And today, today's message is kind of, is going to be one of those. And I'm, I'm just really, really aware of... Um, it's quite possible that people are going to leave today and just go, I've got no idea what that guy was talking about. Uh, and so I would just ask that the Holy Spirit might, might fill in the gaps this morning. We're, we're still in John 15. Well, we actually, we, we started in John 15 just two, two weeks ago. Uh, where we're up to now, uh, it, it's just after the Last Supper. You might have read uh, at the end of John 14 that Jesus and his disciples got up and left that upper room um, where they had Last Supper. And now uh, it seems as though they're on their way somewhere. They're walking somewhere. They're probably walking to the place where Jesus prays what your Bible might say is the high priestly prayer in, in John 17. And he prays this prayer right before he's arrested. If you're following along, you, you would have noticed or you'll, you, you will see that, that, that John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, like five chapters... Nearly a quarter of John's gospel um, is focused almost purely on the words of Jesus, like heaps and heaps of red letters in these, in these five, five chapters. And just across a number of hours between the Last Supper and, and his arrest. So in comparison, John spends just three chapters on the trial and the execution and, and the resurrection. So if word count is anything to go by, then John must reckon, <coughs> pardon me, that what Jesus has to say in these few hours might just be the most important thing in his entire account. This is the focal point. In John's gospel, these few hours contain Jesus' most significant teaching. So two weeks ago, as I mentioned, uh, we started in John 15, Lisa Smith led us through the first eight verses of John 15 and it was in there that we read, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. This, this was the last, this was the seventh of the seven I am statements in John. And you will also remember that John makes a big deal of the number seven throughout his whole gospel account. Seven is the perfect number. And so whenever something is the seventh, then that's kind of perfect. There's, so there's, there, there's a bit of a pinnacle here when Jesus says, I am the vine. We want to pay attention. What's he talking about? I am the vine. It's the seventh I am statement. Now, prior to that, in case you missed it, Andrew McGuinness and I, we recorded a Bible study in John 14. 
So we just sat down here on the stage and we worked through John 14 together and it's up on YouTube or it's on Spotify. Um, if you've not watched that or listened to that yet, can I encourage you to do that so that you kind of stay up to speed with where we are uh, in, in John? If you've not done that, um, then I encourage you to do that soon. Of course, John 14, it, it is a very dense chapter, but one of the profound ideas that Jesus communicates in John 14 is that, is that the, the identity of Jesus and in some way even like the, the location of Jesus is fused together with that of the Father and with that of the Spirit, which of course is Jesus setting, shedding some light on the triune nature of the Godhead. But even more than that, and quite clearly in John 14, and perhaps even more strange and maybe even more scandalous than this three-in-oneness of Father, Son and Spirit, is that we will come to realise that we too have joined them in that fusion. We have become participants in the divine life. In verse 20 of John 14, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You will come to know, you'll come to realise, you will come to be aware of something that is already true. You will come to understand finally that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You will come to know that in the same way that the Son is somehow fused into the Father, so too are we joined into the Son. And I want to say to you from the outset this morning that this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the substance of your salvation. This is the order of oneness and in fact it is the ultimate order of all relationships in the kingdom of God. That I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you, that we are one. This is the eternal inner dynamic of our triune God and it's the good news because you and me, we are included in it. So before we move on, let's do like a one-minute refresher in patristic Trinitarian theology. Are we up for that? Um, so all, all that means, all that means is we're going to like a tiny little snapshot at some of the really early foundational thinking about God and how God has revealed himself as three in one, as three in persons, as one God, as God has revealed himself in, in Trinity. And this is out the really ancient foundational thinking in our faith. And it's going to help because the passages that we're looking at in John now, they are densely Trinitarian. And I know that we've looked at some of this before, but it was a little while ago. Here's a section of the, the Athanasian Creed. Um, so this has been used broadly by the church, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, the whole lot, since about the, the sixth century. This is just a snippet. But the whole creed is kind of focused on a, a, a correct or an orthodox understanding of God and of God as Trinity and the person of Christ within, within the Godhead, 
one God, all equal. It says this, uh, and the Catholic faith, it doesn't mean Catholic church, Catholic means universal, and the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons, like not mushing the persons together, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence, for, is, for, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Ghost. So we've got one God, three persons, all in perfect, eternal, majestic relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Clear as mud. But this matters, right? This matters because if we don't have some understanding of this, then who, who are we praying to? If we don't have some understanding of this one God of three persons, then who, who will we be just singing about? Who do you worship? If we don't understand that, that, that Father, Son and Spirit are, are, are co-majestic, co-eternal, who do you profess? Who do you proclaim? The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. What, what these early theologians in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century, what they began to realise is that it is the relationship between Father, Son and Spirit that is somehow critically important. The nature of relationship that we see in Scripture was somehow essential to understanding who God is and what it is that he ultimately wants and what it is that he has done and what it is that he is doing and what it is that he is going to do. And what they observed, what they described is, is a relationship of reciprocal self-emptying. It is a deep and exhaustive love for one another always pouring out and always being poured into. And the word for this, and, and some of you will be familiar with it, but the, the, the word of, of, of this, the, this relationship is perichoresis. It is the divine dance, the dance of love, the eternal, exhaustive, mutual, reciprocal, circular love for one another. And these theologians began to see that this dynamic of love, it is essential to the beingness, to the character of God, and therefore to everything that God does. And this is why John says, God is love. God is perfect and eternal in relationship. God himself or God themselves is radical, intimate, dynamic and generous inclusion. God is love. Now, the word that we see Jesus using in, in the, the, the texts that we're, we're looking at the moment, Jesus is using this word abiding, or some translations will say remaining, or even dwelling in. And so when Jesus says, abide in me, this, this glimpse into Trinitarian life that we have is just some pathetic attempt to, to get some clue of what it is that he is inviting us into. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit 
by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And so the means of our inclusion into this divine life, our grafting into the vine, is the Holy Spirit. It, it is the Spirit of Christ who makes his home in us and in doing so he binds us into this triune life of Father, Son and Spirit. And the day will come, as brain-bending as it is, that we will realise the truth of it. And the words will drop from here to here and we will know that I'm in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And so this, this is the crescendo. This is God's big idea. This is his whole ambition. It is for this that Jesus was born. It was for this that he lived and led and taught. It was this for that, that he was executed. It was for this that he declared forgiveness, that he was raised to life. It was for this, for your participation in the divine life that the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It is this divine participation by his Spirit that is life, that is life now and that is life in the age to come. And you remember, of course, that this is John's ambition. This is John's goal that we might believe, that we would come to know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the I am, that he is in the Father, that we are in him, that he is in us. And then that by realising, by knowing, by believing that we would have life grafted into the vine. Now, I reckon the enemy has done a pretty effective job of obscuring the truth and the beauty of this from our Western, Protestant, post-enlightenment, consumerist, individualistic eyes. But once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Jesus actually says the same thing over and over and over again. And until it drops from here to here, Jesus is actually just annoying in these passages. Today's passage is going to be the same. This is our theme, abiding. Meno is the word, remaining, dwelling. It is life together, intimate, connected, proximate grafted, fused together. And the, the image here is, is metaphysical. And all that means is that this is a type of fundamental reality that goes, goes beyond our five senses. It goes beyond our experience of space, time and matter, but is nonetheless real. I don't think that Jesus is speaking in allegory or riddles when he says, I'm in you. Rather, I think that what Jesus is communicating here in that in some way that we don't quite understand that the eternal Christ is occupying the same cosmic geography as you, as me. He's in you. You're in him. These aren't trivial Christian words that we skip over. He's in you. You in me. And I in you. This abiding is not some peripheral thing to the Christian life. This is not some advanced second level thing. This is 
the Christian life. It is salvation. It is fruitfulness. It is life now and in the age to come and it is the final and ultimate order of things. Jesus makes this point five times in chapter 14. He makes it at least nine times in chapter 15 and you wait till we get to 17. This is the end game. This is Jesus' ultimate vision. This is the apex, the objective. This is the big idea of the Christian life. Christ within you, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul uses the term in Christ or in Christo 216 times in his letters. As far as Paul is concerned, being in Christ is synonymous with the word Christian. It's what it means. You are in Christ. Theologian John Murray says that this, this union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And so if you miss this, you miss Christianity. If you miss this, you miss Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of life and light and love, the spirit of Christ within us and among us is binding us together and binding us into him and therefore into the divine life of Father, Son and Spirit. This is the whole shooting match. This is why Jesus came. And so now we can start this morning's message. Uh, so John 15, 9 to 15, reading from the ESV. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And here's the point that I want to make out of this passage. And of course, there is so much more to say, but I want to hone in on this. You did not choose me. I chose you. Remember that Jesus himself, he is the chosen one of the Father. We read in, in Isaiah 42, talking about, about Jesus. The Father's saying, here is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit in him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so as the Father chose, as the Father elected the Son, so the Son, according to the Father's will, chose the twelve. Elected the 12. This is who Jesus is, is speaking to right at this point. The 12 did not choose Jesus. He chose them, even Judas. 
Normally, disciples would choose their own rabbi to follow. That's their responsibility. But that's not what we see in the four gospel accounts. It is Jesus that does the choosing because there is a principle at work here. God chooses. God elects. And we see that throughout all of scripture. He chooses individuals for specific tasks. He chooses families and sets them apart, whole tribes for specific duties and even whole nations. God chooses. And so Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's a principle. You did not pick Jesus. You did not choose him from a a range of viable options. And regardless of what I might think, I did not make some rational choice weighing the pros and, and, and cons, which then caused Jesus to do something or to respond in some way. My choosing did not enact or activate my salvation. Jesus chose me. I just eventually came around to the truth of it. I finally perceived that which was already true. I came to know. I came to believe. God the Son chose you in accordance with his Father's will since before the beginning of time, way before you ever had a say in the matter. He chose you. Paul writes in in Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He picked you. He destined you for adoption, to be grafted into himself. And it was always his will in love to do so. Charles Spurgeon wrote, It's a good thing that God chose me before I was born because he surely would not have done so afterwards. He chose you. It's got nothing to do with what you've done or what you haven't done or what you will do or what you won't do. He's already chosen you and in fact... He's already chosen all of us. Back in John 3, Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world, and you know this, the word is cosmos. It is all-encompassing. It is the the whole universe, all of creation. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through him. Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. The, the word repentance here is metanoia. Metanoia is, is a complete upheaval in our worldview. It is to have our mind blown and a a change of direction in our thinking and our knowing. In other words, it is to come to know. The Lord wants all to come to know. Paul in Romans 12 writes, Therefore, as one trespass, he's talking about Adam here, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, all humanity, so one, one act of righteousness 
he's comparing Adam to Jesus, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, for all of humanity. He goes on in, in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ God was reconciling the world, same word again, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. As far as the Father, Son and Spirit are concerned, you're chosen. You're elected, destined. And you cannot exclude yourself from this cosmic reconciling work that Jesus has already completed. You cannot unchoose yourself. You cannot exempt yourself. And Paul is absolutely convinced of this when he writes in Romans 8. He says, For I am sure... I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor, nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else. It's a pretty comprehensive list. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He picked you. He picked me. He picked our parents. He picked our kids. He picked our siblings and our aunties and our uncles and our neighbours and our colleagues and friends and also our enemies. His reconciling work is sufficient to restore the whole universe, all of creation, into the right order, into right relationship. And I love how Jesus describes this right relationship because he chose you as friend. In complete agreement with the Father, the Son chose you, called you and loves you as a friend. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. And here's the thing about friendship, though. Friendship is mutual. Friendship is reciprocal. Friendship is two-way. A servant is not an equal and he's not in a reciprocal relationship with his master. It's a one-way relationship and a good master is the best you can hope for. Even in a family, the relationship can be just one way. You can be a child of God. You can be a brother or sister of Christ and not participate in that relationship not enjoy any of the benefits of that relationship, it not be mutual. You can be totally estranged, not reciprocating, out of relationship and it doesn't change the family status. You're still a son, still a daughter, still a brother, still a sister but friendship is different. For that relationship, for the relationship of friendship to even exist, it must be reciprocal. It must be two-way or three-way or four-way or however many friends there are. And so although Christ has chosen you, chosen me to be friends, there is a reciprocity required on my part for that friendship to be real, for it to be alive. And so we're in the family, it seems. The adoption papers are all signed, no longer orphans. And we can either embrace that reality or we can rebel and we can be estranged from it for all eternity or for at least to the end of time, it seems. But Jesus has chosen us as his adopted brothers, as more than just his adopted brothers and sisters. He's chosen us as his friends. And do you know what? 
There's no hierarchy in friendship. Think about that for a moment. This friendship, this abiding that we are invited into is, of course, love. It is the same love that we spoke about at the start. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Self-emptying love. Others-focused love. This is agape love. It is Agape love is the glue of abiding. It is the essence of divine friendship. Divine, self-emptying love. The love that does not focus on its own interests, but it pours itself out in devotion to the other. Father, Son and Spirit exist for all eternity as this dynamic of love. This is the essential order of things and we are chosen to be a part of it. And so this is why Jesus says, this is my commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another as in the same way that I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. As I've laid down my life for you, you are to lay your lives down for one another. Lay down your self-interest, lay down your self-sufficiency, your power, your status, your ego, and instead fix your attention on one another. Look out for their interest as well, just like I did for you. This is the shape of friendship that we are created for. Mutual self-emptying, the love that binds us together in the Holy Spirit of love. This really is what it means to abide. It is the proximate, intimate, mutual, others-focused friendship that lays down its own life, that empties itself for the other, only to find that we are already filled by the love of our friends. Jesus' commandment is that this is how we, this is how the body of Christ is to function together. And this is how the world will know that we are his disciples. Love one another. In the, in the way that corresponds to the love that exists eternally within the Godhead itself. Others focused, self-giving, reciprocal. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. You are my friends. You are truly abiding in me if you love one another. The way you participate in this divine friendship with me is by loving one another. Why? Because I'm in them too, remember? If you love them, then you love me. Because as I'm in you, I'm in your brothers and sisters. Am I making sense? If you love them, then you love me. Because I am in them too. Now we're in friendship. Now we're in relationship. Now we're friends. It's from this place of friendship then, this place of abiding, this place of abiding that I chose you for, that I send you. So go and bear fruit. As you remain connected to the vine, go and bear fruit. Go and be fruitful that your fruit should also abide. Go and bear fruit, love, love others in the same self-emptying way that the Father loves me and that I love you so that those that you love 
might also become connected and grafted into the vine and then they will bear fruit too. Go in full confidence that I'm in you, that you're in me and that I've already chosen others too for this abiding life. They just don't know yet. They just haven't realised yet that I've chosen them too. Go and bear fruit. And then as you live in this manner, as you live in this abiding life, loving others, bearing fruit, then whatever you ask the Father from, from within this movement of divine love, from within its dynamism of agape, then you go ahead and ask that he might give it to you. Because if you're petitioning the Father from within, from within that place of self-emptying love, one for one another, then you are functioning from within him and from within his will. And so here's my question as we close. The band can come up if you like. Have you come to know? Have you come to realise? Have you had the revelation of this abiding love? And I'm not talking about this one, I'm talking about this one. Have you had the revelation? Has the day come yet when you realise that the eternal Son of God is in you? that you are in him. I mean, really. When that revelation comes, it cannot help but change everything. Over these coming weeks and as we continue in John 15, 16 and 17, it will become blatantly obvious that this ultimate union reality is the number one thing on the heart and mind of Jesus as he comes to the cross. And John knows it. And so my hope and my prayer is that, that this, we would have this revelation that as we hear from Jesus himself, that in some new way we would come to grips with the sheer mind-blowing, scandalous enormity of it all. I chose you and I'm in you and that you're in me, that we are truly one. And that this reality, the, the, the revelation, it would revolutionise our lives and indeed it would revolutionise his church and from there the whole world. I'm going to ask this morning that you might pray for one another. I'm not going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask that you might shift your chairs around where you are, that you'd be facing your brothers and sisters in whom Christ dwells. And I'm going to ask that you would pray for one another. Do that now. Shift your chairs around. Please. And I'm going to ask that as you pray, that you would just ponder prayerfully the implications of this. What if this is right? What if Jesus means it when he says, I'm in you? What if he's in me? What if I'm in him? What if he's also in, in these brothers and sisters who are around me now? Not as a throwaway line, but as a reality that's bigger and beyond ourselves. What does that mean for my Christian life? For the body, for prayer, for mission? Can you pray with and for one another and be brave enough to hope that it's true? And in a few minutes, the band will lead us in a, in a final song. I encourage you to come.